This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Stacey Abrams probably would be governor of Georgia right now if the vote count had been fair and the vote suppression stopped. She's a remarkable person who may run for the Senate from Georgia next year. I spoke with her when she was in L.A. recently. We'll listen to that interview later in this hour. Also, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren are the women from the Senate who have announced campaigns for the Democratic nomination. Our Joan Walsh has been traveling with Gillibrand. She'll report later in this hour. But first, the Supremes and the Census. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, Trump wants to require respondents to the 2020 census to state whether or not they're citizens. And the Supreme Court heard arguments about that on Tuesday. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So why does Trump want to require respondents to the 2020 census to state whether or not they're citizens? Because it would likely reduce the number of uh, immigrants, uh, some undocumented, some documented, uh, who are apprehensive uh, in a time of the administration's war on immigrants to, uh, you know, deal with that question. And by so doing, it would uh, mean that the census would register fewer residents of uh, Areas with lots of immigrants, uh, which would include, uh, you know, the bluest of cities, uh, blue states. Uh, it could cause a state like California possibly to, uh, you know, lose a con- congressional seat or two that would otherwise have, since California has far and away more immigrants than any other state. Um, it would therefore lead to uh, an imbalance in the electoral college that would further uh, the the overrepresentation of you know states that are disproportionately uh, non-immigrant, that are disproportionately white, that are the small white states on 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 which uh, Republicans are counting to get them an electoral college majority, even if they don't have a popular vote uh, plurality, that kind of stuff. Well, it it turns out that the law. You may say, how could this be legal? It turns out the law says it's up to the Commerce Secretary to decide what questions are in the census questionnaire, and he can pretty much add whatever he wants to. It doesn't take an act of Congress. The Commerce Secretary is Wilbur Ross. Wilbur Ross says he wants to add this question. The law allows him to do that. Uh, And now the Supreme Court has been asked by some states, led by New York, uh, to rule that this is the inappropriate, uh, wrong, uh, biased, and and, uh, perhaps even unconstitutional. What's the argument? uh, How's the argument looking at this point? Well, uh, the argument uh, by the state of New York is looking pretty good to uh, an unbiased observer. It's not clear that uh, there's a majority of unbiased observers, however, on the United States yes. Supreme Court. The court under John Roberts and before John Roberts has a history of doing things that 
uh, advantage Republicans electorally. Uh, uh, you know, going back to Bush v. Gore, let's take a obvious example. Yeah. But in in the Shelby County decision under under Chief Justice Roberts, they struck down most of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, had it been in place, your uh, guest later on in this hour, Stacey Abrams, would surely be governor of Georgia, not Brian Kemp. Um, they've uh, advantaged corporate interests. Uh, they may yet decide that gerrymandering is okay by them. And when this uh, case was argued before them earlier in the week, the four uh, clearly conservative justices were were were, were very clear that uh, it was okay with them if this question was uh, put on the census. Although the sen- the Constitution requires a census to enumerate all people, it doesn't distinguish among categories of people. It just says people. Uh, uh, that that's the duty of the Census Bureau. Uh, the argument against was that this would lead to an undercount uh, of, of a particular group of people, thereby violating what the Constitution requires of the census uh, every 10 years. Uh, but John Roberts, who is ostensibly the remaining swing vote, since the real swing vote, Anthony Kennedy, is no longer on the court, uh, John Roberts uh, basically asked some questions which suggest that he would go with his four Republican conservative colleagues, uh, sort of Republican first, constitutionalist second, being the watchword of the current Supreme Court. And so that that does not look good uh, for uh, any attempts to get that question taken off the census. And this, uh, this court's decision will be announced next month, is that right, May? Uh, I, I think so, yes, uh, since uh, the Census Bureau has to... Uh, has to prepare. By the way, there's a law that says the Commerce Secretary has to run any new questions by Congress three years before the census is issued. Really? That was an, yeah, that was another uh, uh, reason why people hope maybe the court would not allow this, uh, this question, because, uh, because Wilbur Ross did not do that. Uh, but uh, that didn't seem to raise much concern with the gang of five on the court. So if if uh, Roberts joins his conservative colleagues and uh, issues a decision next month that the, that, the, that the census questionnaire may include uh, a question, are you a, uh, a citizen, then this goes on the written form. The written form is mailed to every household. The uh, households are supposed to fill it out. The households that don't fill it out, then there is an effort made, and we will have to redouble our efforts to uh, encourage people to fill out the questionnaire, even if they have anxieties about answering that question. So there will be a lot of work to be done uh, in places like Pico Union and uh, East, East L.A. and uh, South Central. Uh, and all over the map. It's not just them, but yes, most particularly there. But, you know, this is really a damned if you do, damned if you don't uh, situation. That's what's so uh, really uh, dangerous about it. Uh, uh, you know, I can imagine some people in, in, in a household where they're undocumented saying, look, if we, uh, uh, you know, if we fill this out and say no, we, you know, uh, the uh, uh, immigrant, Im- Im- La Migra, the immigration authorities may be pounding on our door. If we uh, fill it out and say we are citizens, uh, La Migra could say, well, you're committing perjury. Uh, yeah. So it, it really is uh, the problem from hell. 
Second, second issue in the news today, Joe Biden has finally declared that he's running for president for the Democratic nomination. Uh, his announcement video released a few hours ago uh, featured a, a strong condemnation of Trump's statements around Charlottesville. Uh, the former vice president said this was going to be a battle for the soul of this nation, but he did not mention jobs, health care, or free college tuition. Uh, nevertheless, Biden's main claim is that he can win, and the polls indeed show, right now anyway, that he, he would beat Trump by a larger margin than Bernie, than Beto, and than the others. Uh, the claim is that he will be able to connect especially with the older white voters of the upper Midwest, that would be Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the states that were lost to Trump. Uh, what do you make of Biden's candidacy on this first day? Well, this is sort of this has certainly been the delayed entry. I, I think, yes. of, uh, as I recall, in Moliere's play Tartuffe, uh, a five-act comedy. Uh, Tartuffe himself doesn't enter until Act Three. Uh, <laughs> this is sort of following the Tartuffe pattern. Of that. Uh, and, and it's not clear to me why. You know, I mean, the, the, one of the perverse effects of his delaying his entry to this point is that when the other candidates entered, they all their negative stuff was immediately brought to the surface. In Biden's case, it's already been brought to the surface before he enters. So uh, we don't know. If, if, if there are any other shoes to drop, but shoes have already dropped, including the uh, statement from Anita Hill that he did call her, uh, but that she still is not going to back him, at least in the primaries. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, some of the criticism of Biden's opening statement, you know, I think it's a little silly. I mean, there's no question he's uh, basically going to be, uh, you know, the basic uh, Democrat uh, committed on, on, on issues like jobs and wages. But then there's a whole slew of other issues. It's, um, some, many of the candidates who've been in the field for some time have been ducking, uh, certainly Beto and, uh, and uh, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, but um, uh, that you know, Elizabeth Warren in particular introduces an innovative progressive uh, uh, policy every other day. So yeah. it would seem, and and we're not we're not you know it, we haven't heard from Biden on 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 any of this stuff. And um, you know there is there is a question as to whether some voters will view him just as the ancien regime. Not that the ancien regime wasn't a lot better than the Trump regime. And uh, uh, while he may well be stronger with those voters you talked about in the upper Midwest states, it's not clear if he, you know, would get the minority or uh, female turnout that, uh, you know, another nominee might get. Uh, I, I, I think it's uh, uh, a little early to handicap the race, particularly in as much as Biden is the 20th, count them, 20, uh, Democratic candidate to uh, to enter the field. Well, just to review the, uh, I know we're, we 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 hate those darn uh, horse race polls, but that this is the basic the, the basic case for Biden is that he can beat Trump. He's more likely to beat Trump than anybody else. The Emerson College poll. Uh, which is a pretty good poll, has <clears throat> Biden beating Trump by six points, Bernie beating Trump by three. 
uh, Beto beating Trump by two, Kamala Harris beating Trump by one, and all the others, including Elizabeth Warren, losing to Trump if the election were held April 14th. Um, the strategy of relying on Biden, though, is seems to me to reject everything that uh, Bernie showed as possible in the last time around. It's to restore uh, the old Democratic uh, Party and the old Democratic electorate. But we think the Democratic electorate has changed quite a bit since Biden ran, don't we? Well, it has, and it's not it's not clear that uh, you know Biden can win a it's not clear that he's he's going to prevail in this contest yeah. b th- that was a poll from april 14th of the year before the election and yes. where these candidates will stand at the end of just this year never mind next year um we really have no idea there've been no debates yet yeah. uh, uh we'll see how they wear biden has a history of sort of uh, screwing up his own presidential candidacies uh, that that happened twice before. So you know, if yes, if the election were held today, uh, I I don't doubt he would be the strongest uh, Democrat uh, of 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 the twenty. But the election isn't actually going to be held for a year and a half. Uh, the other the other remarkable f- uh, feature of these recent polls is that the three white men are way ahead of. Of all the women, the three white men, uh, well, if we look at the Monmouth poll, that would be Biden, Bernie, and Mayor Pete together have 55%. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris has 8%. Elizabeth Warren has 6%. Uh, this, how do you explain, is this just people being gun-shy over the experience of running uh, Hillary? Or, or why are white yeah, men well, doing I, so I well? Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, part of it is gun gun shyness uh, after after the Hillary experience. Although uh, Hillary had a lot of uh, issues and baggage quite apart from her gender. Uh, secondly, uh, Biden and Bernie uh, are are known to far more uh, voters than uh, Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris. Uh, uh, who are new to the presidential contest? Uh, so there's a built-in advantage there. Um, so I mean, there's a lot of factors, and you know, uh, what I just keep saying to people is, it's early yet. Let's yes. see how this uh, how this plays out. But but it is also the case that uh, some people have concluded that uh, there's no way a woman is going to win uh, enough of these uh, uh, male voters. Uh, to swing it uh, to the Democrats in uh, in 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 2020, and I, I am not one of those people, but there are a lot of those people. Well, there are more women voters in America than men, and they are overwhelmingly Democrats, especially the single ones and the women of color. Uh, that is part of the basis of the campaign of Kamala Harris and also of Elizabeth Warren, frankly. Yeah, it is. It is, uh, and you know they 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 start without the kind of name advantage that both uh, Biden and Bernie have, uh, and we'll see if through the debates and and other uh, other events uh, they can go up, and uh, maybe Biden and Bernie would come down a bit. Uh, but but I think there is a lot of gun shyness after uh, uh, after 2020. In Elizabeth Warren's case, the sort of blown up thing about Trump attacking her. On uh, you know the Native American stuff uh, is is in many ways 
what most people know about Elizabeth Warren, which yeah. is, uh, you know, clearly there is work to be done uh, on, you know, by her campaign to, to get other words out about her. Well, we've only got about three minutes left here, and I also want to ask about the third big topic in the news. Uh, the House committees investigating Trump have subpoenaed uh, all kinds of uh, information and individuals, and Trump says he's going to resist every subpoena. Uh, this will then have to be adjudicated through, if you if you defy a House committee, you can be found guilty of contempt of Congress, you can be fined, you can even be imprisoned, you can even be impeached uh, for refusing a, a House subpoena. What do you, uh, wh- how long is it going to take before some of these people uh, are brought to justice or, or before a committee? Uh, I don't know how long it'll take, but as someone who remembers Watergate very clearly, the whole the whole effect of of the Irvin uh, the uh, Irvin Commission hearings in particular brought everyone who had worked for Nixon, uh, from uh, his chief of staff Bob Haldeman to the Attorney General John Mitchell, all kinds of folks were subpoenaed. They didn't want to be there, but they showed up and testified. Uh, and Nixon <coughs> didn't do. You know, he claimed executive privilege on on some things, not on uh, usually not on this. Uh, and and when he did claim it, he he lost. Uh, so we will see. But you know, it's a different Republican Party now than it was then. Uh, let's remember that when the smoking gun tape, as it was called, was released, showing that Nixon said, "We I'm going to order the CIA to order the FBI to." basically stopped the Watergate investigation, and, and that was on the tape, every Republican on the House Judiciary Committee then said, okay, given that, we think the guy should be impeached. Uh, today, that, but that was, you know, that was before Fox News, that was before Rush Limbaugh, uh, that was before the Republican Party became a cult. Uh, and so uh, while Trump, uh, you know, if, if, if the people who uh, Mueller got to testify to him uh, come before Congress and say what they say to Congress, what they say, what they said to Mueller about Trump's obstruction of justice. In the old days, the Republicans would have said, "Okay, the guy obstructed justice; he's got to go." Uh, I don't think they 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 will say that today. So, uh, you know, and and you know, the fact that Trump is taking a harder line than Nixon on whether any of these people can even appear before the committee is is illustrative in some ways of that change as well. Well, the morning consult uh, poll of a couple of days ago, found that Trump's popularity has hit a record low. They are measuring the net approval, the difference between uh, approve and disapprove, 18 points underwater. It's never been that high uh, uh, or that low, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, the gap the gap between his, his approval and his disapproval has never been as great. Uh, this is clearly a result of the Mueller report, and uh, perhaps it will it will widen further in the weeks and months to come. Perhaps it will, but the genius of gerrymandering is that most Republicans in the House, anyway, are in districts that are overwhelmingly Republican, and the gap isn't negative among those folks. Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the, if it were to ever reach the Senate. Uh, it's hard to believe Mitch McConnell would permit it to proceed, but that, you know, since you don't gerrymander state boundaries, you might get some Republican senators thinking about, well, maybe he should go, or if because if he doesn't, uh, I may go. But uh, for those who are able to shape their own districts, which are the Republicans in the House, uh, even a, a negative 18 percent favor, you know, unfavorability rating. 
uh, isn't enough uh, probably to move them. Harold Meyerson, he talked about how Biden compares to Tartuffe. Read more about it in Moliere <laughs> and read more of Harold at the American Prospect at prospect.org. Uh, Harold, it's always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, Stacey Abrams probably would be governor of Georgia right now if not for vote suppression and an unfair vote count. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, our Joan Walsh reports on Kirsten Gillibrand's campaign for the presidency. But first, Stacey Abrams. She was the first African-American and the first woman to win a major party nomination to run for governor of Georgia. And last year, she almost won that election. A lot of us think she would have won if the count had been fair and if her opponent had not engaged in massive voter suppression. Now she's deciding what to run for next. She could run for the Senate in Georgia next year. She could also run for president. In the meantime, she's published a book. It's called Leading from Outside. It was number three on the New York Times bestseller list. We spoke with her about it and about her life when she was in L.A. recently. Before we talk about uh, your book, Lead from the Outside, I want to talk about what you accomplished in Georgia when you ran for governor. Everybody I know says that if there'd been a fair count, you would be the governor of Georgia right now. Um, but you did accomplish anyway some amazing things in that race. So first I want to talk about the votes you got despite the votes you weren't allowed to get. How did your vote compare with other Democrats in recent history? So we received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, uh, including President Obama, Secretary Clinton, any, any Democrat who's ever run. Uh, we were only under by 54,000 votes, but what I was so excited about was the composition of the electorate. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. We increased black turnout by 40%. But to put that in context, in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted altogether. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. And we centered communities of color. We centered marginalized communities. We talked about their issues. And I was told that that would be to the detriment of my ability to secure white votes. And I actually received a higher percentage of white votes than any candidate in Georgia, uh, any Democratic candidate in Georgia since Bill Clinton. How did you do it? <laughs> well, one is that I believe what I say. I, I believe diversity matters. And I think it's an active responsibility. It's insufficient to say you want something to be so, but you don't find your own responsibility to make it happen. And so our campaign was grounded in talking about identities, but never as an exclusionary principle. People vote, people participate when they think they can be seen. And my job was to show up in places to have either firsthand knowledge 
or have a supporting team that could help me understand what concerns were animating those communities or worse, what concerns were keeping them out of the body politic. And we built a campaign around creating access and creating a pathway for their participation. And it worked. And the work that went into this wasn't just one campaign for governor. No. <laughs> so one thing I talk about in, in the book and Lead from the Outside is the responsibility to build that systems don't just come into being and therefore dismantling those systems or creating your own systems also require intentionality and thoughtfulness and infrastructure. And I, by my nature, am a systems person. I believe that democracy should be vibrant and engaged, but I also believe that poverty is immoral. And I believe that communities are too often kept distant from their power by being convinced that their power doesn't exist. And so I've spent the last 40, well, 45, so let's say between one and five, I was probably not as active, (laughs) but (laughs) I've spent most of my waking life thinking about how do you get more people to the table? How do you get more people engaged? And in the last 20 years, I've been able to put that into practice through my work in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and certainly the political sector. You have a really important section of your book on how to fight for groups of which you are not a part. And of course, we have to do this because we need allies if we're going to win. But it's hard to do that right. You say empathy is not enough. What is your approach? I think you have to have understanding, but you also have to lift up those who actually have those experiences. Sometimes empathy gives us an excuse. It lets us think that because I have something similar in my background that I now know what you know, and I know what you need. And that's when allyship becomes patronizing. What's more important is creating space for the people who actually have those experiences to do something about it. So for example, when I became democratic leader, I took over a caucus that had very few staff, in fact, almost no one. And I was building a staff, but I built a staff that looked like me and looked like people I know, so it was black and white. And I took myself to task that in a state that was quickly diversifying, where Latinos were becoming nearly 10% of the population, where Asian Pacific Islanders were growing in force, I had a responsibility to increase their access. And so I created an internship program to bring them on board initially, and then I found the money necessary to hire them. I hired a Palestinian, a young Palestinian woman to be my executive assistant because I could not speak authentically about engaging the Muslim community and not find space for their employment. And these are all people who were absolutely qualified for the jobs they had, but I had to be intentional about creating space so they had a platform to do the leadership they needed to do. So the big question is, after you accomplished all these things, the huge increase in turnout of Latinos, Asian Americans, young people, uh, after you got more votes than anybody, including Obama on the Democratic ticket, how come the Republican won? And because I was running against a cartoon villain who was the referee, the scorekeeper, and the contestant. He had 10 years of voter suppression under his belt. He had built a system that built on top of previous attempts at voter suppression that actually started under his predecessor. And he manipulated the laws, uh, aggressively enforced and selectively enforced those laws. He failed also to do the fundamentals of his job. And so we had this marriage of incompetence and malfeasance that allowed him to suppress access to the vote. 
I cannot prove empirically that I would have gotten every one of the votes that were suppressed. But if you look at the demography of those votes, if you look at the intentionality of his actions, I think it's a really good guess. So let's talk about fair fight action. So fair fight action was born of my frustration, my disappointment, but also my anger. Uh, democracy is ours. I am an American. I am entitled to have my voice heard. But so were the millions of people who cast their ballots on both sides of the aisle and the tens of thousands who were not allowed to have their voices heard. My responsibility beyond getting an office is ensuring that anyone who wants to speak up about the the direction they want to see for our state or for our country, that they are heard. And in Georgia, they were not. And so I want there to be a fair fight. And let's be clear, no matter what happens, I will never win the office of governor in 2018. It won't happen. But my responsibility is larger than my personal benefit. And that is that we fix the system itself. Fair fight action focuses on three things, registration access, ballot access, and ballot counting making sure that you can get on the rolls, you can stay on the rolls, you have the ability to actually cast a ballot, they don't close your precinct or deny you access to an absentee ballot, and that your vote counts once you cast it. And we're gonna do that through litigation, through legislation, and through advocacy work. And where do we stand on that today? So the litigation is ongoing. We are currently in a tete-a-tete with the Secretary of State in the governor's office, or technically the Secretary of State's office in the state of Georgia, they are seeking to dismiss our motion. Um, they're seeking to dismiss our lawsuit with a motion to dismiss. Uh, we will keep fighting. We believe we will be successful. Uh, we have been fighting a terrible bill that has moved through the legislature and sits on the governor's desk that will allow him to spend $150 million more than has ever been spent by any state on voting machines. And he's likely to purchase machines that are known to be flawed, known to be hackable, known to be vulnerable. They've been called the worst voting machines out there. And it is a happy coincidence that the company that stands likely to win the bid formerly employed his chief of staff, his deputy chief of staff and his general counsel just months before he became governor. Now, uh, you're an attorney. You graduated from Yale Law School. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think are your chances in court on this one? Uh, we think that on the issue of litigation, we think that we have a very strong case. We believe that it's uh, sui generis in that most litigation on voting rights have tried to tackle individual elements, uh, precinct closures or voter ID or uh, closing of access, you know, the issues that we faced, and they, they tend to approach it individually. We are looking at it systemically. We are taking the Brown versus the Board of Education approach, which is to say that while de jure, while the law may say it's so, the fact of the matter is when the law is implemented as it is being implemented in Georgia, people are being disenfranchised and they do not have the right to vote. And so our argument is that we believe that the de facto denial of the right to vote violates the Constitution, and I'm very bullish on our chances. But I'm also very happy that we have other folks fighting this fight. Uh, Chairman Cummings, who is the chair of uh, the Oversight Committee in Congress in the House of Representatives, has demanded documents from the Secretary of State and the governor to investigate their bad actions. We also have been part of hearings, field hearings, being led by Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who's the chair of the subcommittee on uh, oversight 
for administration looking at the Voting Rights Act, and then Terry Sewell, who's pushing for the restoration of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, they're all paying attention to what we're doing. And so I do think, whether it's through litigation or legislation, I do think we will be successful at some point. Now, I've heard that Georgia isn't the only state with this kind of problem. What's your sense of the national picture right now? So one of the reasons I'm traveling the country and talking about this is that it's not endemic to Georgia. I think Georgia had not only the most singular example of voter suppression, but it's the most directly connected to the victory or loss in an election. Voter suppression is real, it's endemic, it's pervasive, and it's been around forever. But in my case, I had essentially a cartoon villain opponent, and the clearest case of not only voter suppression, but the main actor who clearly controlled the outcome of the election. However, we know that in North Dakota in 2018, people were denied the right to vote because they were Native American. We know that in 2016, if you lived in Wisconsin or Michigan, there were efforts at voter suppression that were incredibly successful. We know that in Florida, there is a perennial issue with whether or not votes count. We know that in Texas and in North Carolina, voter registration, which is the predicate to being able to cast your ballot, has been made nearly impossible by third parties in Texas and been made very difficult in North Carolina. And across the country, including in California and other places, there are methods of voter suppression that are insidious and almost invisible to the eye unless you're the person trying to vote. And so my responsibility is to use Georgia as an object lesson. Uh, And because this is my state, to use our opportunities to try to solve it in Georgia. But we filed a federal lawsuit because our success in Georgia will affect the rest of the country. So let's let's talk about your book, Lead from the Outside. It has exercises. In the first one, you call an ambition exercise. How come ambition is number one? Because ambition is the foundation for leadership. You have to want more. In fact, the the title of the chapter is Dare to Want More. And if you're from the outside, and, and marginalization happens in a lot of ways. You can be from the outside because of race or gender or ethnicity or religion or class or simply, you know, because you're just different than those around you. But whatever keeps you outside of the normative power structure, to get inside, you've got to have a reason. And we often mistake dreams for ambition. Dreams are things that make you happy, but you can forget a dream. In fact, we often forget our (laughs) dreams. Ambition animates you, it fires you up, and it's unsettling. But we have to then harness it. And the challenge is that if you're from the outside, you're rarely taught how to harness your ambition. If you come from a powerful family, if you come from a power structure that validates your every thought, then there are systems in place to help you turn ambition almost automatically into action. But for the rest of us, we have to have an architecture. And that means we have to know what we're trying to get to. And so what I wanted to do in this book, and the whole book is about this, is take what I learned through trial and error, but also through being deeply anal retentive and methodical and write it down, create a handbook for those of us who do not have those systems that are already designed for our success. And the bird agrees. birds are chirping with happiness. (laughs) One of the surprising parts to me about your book is the section about the hack. You say that you have been a good hacker. This is kind of surprising. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, in, in, in modern parlance, we talk about hacking things, hacking 
meals. It's basically how do you figure out what the system is and then how do you get around it or through it without doing the regular stuff. A lot of my life has been about a hack. It's been about how do you take these traditional spaces and figure out if you can't get them to let you in, how do you figure out your own way inside? Uh, you know, in years past, it would have been called guerrilla warfare. Uh, <laughs> but for me, it's, it's understanding that when you first look at opportunity, when you first look at these doorways and gateways, there may seem to be no possible point of entry. And that's why we have to figure out our own codes and our own systems. And so what I tried to do with this book, and particularly in this chapter, is talk about how I've hacked my way inside, how I've, both in the, the sort of computer science and video games parlance, but also in the very you know pedestrian physical idea of just hacking through. When you've got to slice through, if you've ever you know, wor worked on a farm, when you've got to cut through the weeds and get through the detritus, sometimes it's just about recognizing you're not going to get there the normal way, so you're going to have to fight your way through. In your book, you say you reject the idea of work-life balance. Can you explain why? Because work-life balance is a lie. It is a bald-faced lie told by someone who was selling something, and you need to return whatever it is they sold you. I, I've been asked how I write novels and run for office and start companies. And what I'm supposed to say is that, well, I figured out this amazing you know, equilibrium and things. That's not true. I've made mistakes. I've forfeited other opportunities. I've not done things that I care about because I haven't cared about them as much as I cared about the thing I wanted to do at that moment. And what work-life balance does is it creates a false sense of opportunity, but it also puts pressure on you in ways that are untenable because eventually you're going to fail. Things are going to fall apart. So instead, I operate under work-life Jenga. That's the game where everything gets mm -hmm. stacked up and you have to pull pieces out and you hope like hell that nothing falls over. But the reality is, like Jenga, when everything collapses in on itself, the job isn't to ignore that it fell apart, it's to rebuild it and figure out a stronger structure to make it work. You have a couple of other wonderful rules. If it can't change the world, we don't do it. And that's followed by don't deal with jerks. Yes. So I started a company right after I left the city attorney's office, and that was my first venture into entrepreneurship. And I realized I needed a partner, in part because I think you always get better when you have people around you who know things that you don't know and who push you to be stronger. My first business partner was a woman named Laura Hodgson. Laura and I have since started three other companies. But in our first one in Insomnia, we had a set of rules. And one of our rules is we don't work with jerks. It was slightly more crass when we wrote it down. Uh, but our point was this. We'd both come from spaces where we'd worked with people who weren't just difficult to deal with. They were disrespectful. They devalued us, in some ways dehumanized us. And when you work in those spaces and you feel compelled to keep doing it, you start to internalize how you're treated and you validate it. And so we had a rule that if people were not respectful of our values. We could disagree. You could have a difficult personality, but you could not devalue who we were. You could not treat us as less than real and human and whole. And so we had a rule that if we just didn't respect you and thought that you were a bad person or just not a good person, the money wasn't worth it. 
I want to ask a little about your family. You have the most wonderful acknowledgments, and it's clear you have an amazing family. I'm especially interested in your parents because they started in Mississippi, and I'm I'm old enough to know what it meant to be a black person in Mississippi. Could you tell us a little about them? My parents are the most extraordinary people I've ever known, and I've met some really amazing people. But my mom and dad are both from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My mom is one of seven. My dad is one of five. My dad jokes that he's from the wrong side of the track, and my mom's from the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. Like she's who poor people made fun of. Uh, my mother's life story is, especially her younger years, is like a Dickens novel. I mean, every time she tells us something, we go and buy her more stuff. <laughs> what they did was not let their humble beginnings, in some ways their tragic beginnings, they didn't allow that to diminish what they thought they were capable of. You know, my father is dyslexic. He didn't learn to read functionally. I mean, he was able to make his way through school. He made his way through college because he has this amazing memory and he's incredibly smart. But he learned to read better by reading to my youngest sister when he had fallen and hurt himself and wasn't able to work full time and they needed someone to watch my youngest sister when she they couldn't afford kindergarten for her or pre-K. My mother has always been just this brilliant woman who can make things happen out of nothing and I saw her do that not only as a mom and a librarian but also as a pastor I saw my father fight hard for people who didn't always value and respect him and sometimes benefited from his work but he didn't benefit from it and then I saw them turn those moments of defeat into opportunities for triumph by becoming ministers and they were called into the ministry and they live their faith and their sense of justice and responsibility every single day. And as long as they are not disappointed in me, I know I'm doing the right thing. One last thing. The amazing thing about your book is that it doesn't say, vote for me because I can do this. It says, you can do this, even if you're an outsider. I wrote this book in part because I was giving talks to different groups. I was I was actually in the middle of my campaign. I just started my campaign for governor. It was in the middle of the primary and wanted to provide a handbook. Uh, there are a lot of leadership books out there, and there are a lot of political memoirs. I didn't want to write a memoir because I've met me, and I, I'm, I like my story, but I don't think it's sufficient to sustain a whole book. But... I think there were things I did that positioned me to be the first black woman to be a nominee for a party, a major party for governor. I knew there were things I had done that allowed me to help start companies that were helping women and people of color and other communities access capital. I'd started this voter registration organization that had registered uh, by the end of 2018 more than 300,000 people. There were things I knew, but I also understood that knowledge in my head wasn't helping other people and that one-off conversations were inefficient and I really value efficiency. And so for me, this was really about enlarging the army of people who can be successful, especially those who discount themselves before anyone else can. When you're on the outside, you're perennially looking in, trying to figure out how to get inside. And I believe that if you can find a doorway or a cracked window and shove yourself through that space, your responsibility is not to run and get the next thing you need. Your job is to turn around and prop it open and send out a clarion call and tell folks, here's where it is. Come on through. And that's what I tried to do. 
Well, Stacey Abrams, thanks so much for talking with us today. And we're really excited about whatever it is you do next. John, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for having me. Stacey Abrams' book, Lead from the Outside, was number three on the New York Times bestseller list. What will Stacey Abrams do next? Here's the latest. Quote, I think indecision is fine, close quote, she said earlier this week. I am in contemplation and evaluation. To make a good decision, you actually need to think about it. There are some moments when urgency demands an immediate decision, she said. This is not one of those moments. That's Stacey Abrams earlier this week. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Joan Walsh on Kirsten Gillibrand. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. But first, Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Kamala Harris are the women in the Senate who have announced campaigns for the Democratic nomination. Our Joan Walsh has been covering the Gillibrand campaign, and we turn to her now. Joan, of course, is national affairs correspondent for the nation and a CNN political contributor. She worked for six years as editor-in-chief of Salon. We reached her today in Manhattan. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, we used to think of Kirsten Gillibrand as a fairly conservative Wall Street kind of Democrat, at least when she first went to the Senate in 2009 when she won the seat vacated by Hillary Clinton. But now she's running as a Medicare for all, Green New Deal progressive. How authentic has her political transformation been, do you think? Well, I think it's been relatively authentic. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've known her for a while. I've followed her for a while. I spent time with her, not just for this profile, but for other things. And, you know, I've heard her, her origin story and her evolution story. You know, she says that she was really desperate to leave corporate law and that world for politics. She won a seat in a very red, red district uh, in New York. And then when she got her appointment to the Senate, she began to interact with Democrats in other places and credits people for kind of bringing her along and educating her, particularly on the issues of immigration reform and, and gun control. She ran in, in a very red district, for instance, championing Medicare for all before anybody was talking about it back in 2006. So there are ways in which she's always been more progressive. She voted against the bank bailout because as somebody with some Wall Street experience, she thought that banks were getting bailed out while consumers and uh, homeowners were being harder hit. So there are ways in which her earlier reputation was slightly incorrect. She's an early advocate of Medicare for all, but you say in your new cover story for The Nation that even more important, she's running as something that you call a resistance mom. What does that mean? I think more than any of the other women, and I don't say this either as praise or criticism, I think she really sees herself and identifies with the women 
who were crushed by the defeat of Hillary Clinton. Uh, certainly she counts herself among them. She admits that she cried for a long time after Trump's election. She was revived by the Women's March. And she, she runs, you know, she runs as a mom. She talks about being a mom in a lot of different contexts, whether it's talking about childhood asthma rates in the Bronx, which are hideously high, and uh, particularly, understandably, uh, her dealing with family separation policies at the border, you know, talking to boys the age of her sons. So I I think she also makes a very explicitly feminist pitch, which is not to say that the other senators are not feminists, but she leads with it in a way that the others uh, maybe don't quite as much more of a of a feeling tone than a, a policy thing. She's also for a long time been an advocate of paid family leave, something, you know, near and dear to the hearts of, of many mothers who struggled to take care of very young children and, and get back to work quickly at the same time. So there's a way in which that, you know, she's always, that's always been part of her identity. But in the aftermath of Donald Trump, I think it's a particularly potent identity. What exactly does she mean by Medicare for all? Does she support the Progressive Caucus bill introduced by Pramila Jayapal, which covers just about everything? Well, she supports a lot of it. The bill has not been introduced in the Senate. Senator Sanders, I believe, uh, Senator Sanders is taking the lead, but it's not out yet. So I'm going to take some of her reticence with me as being not wanting to get out in front of it. Uh, She supports expanding it to vision and dental care. She supports dropping co-pays. She supports it covering everyone. There were a couple things I could not get answers on. She is an evangelist for it, the way she always has been, believing that if we make it voluntary, and she talks about for four years, people will will volunteer to enroll because it will be a better deal than private, for-profit, gouging insurance companies are offering us. She's very optimistic about that. When I pressed her on, well, okay, what happens after four years, though, if people say, I'd rather stay with my private insurance, et cetera, I didn't get an answer to that. She did say she thought that the Jayapal two-year plan, she did not agree with that. So we're not sure exactly when uh, the Sanders bill will be introduced. It's imminent, uh, I was told, but I do expect she'll be a co-sponsor. Kirsten Gillibrand makes it clear that she is not a socialist. She defends something she calls healthy capitalism, and she attacks what she calls corrupt capitalism. Please explain what she means by these. Well, she's very uh, explicit. She, although she talks about her friend Bernie a lot, and they are friends, I believe. Uh, you know, she wants to make clear she's not a socialist. She's a capitalist, but she believes the problems with capitalism come from greed. Uh, and I, you know, when I suggested that greed is kind of part of the system and uh, the system is arranged for shareholder profits, she insisted it doesn't have to be that way and that there's a role for uh, very aggressive and progressive government regulation to curb greed and make capitalism work for more people. But, you know, we we got into an interesting discussion of the the, uh, Amazon deal in New York uh, that fell apart. She opposed the deal 
but she wanted to see some deal, unlike some folks who thought, you know, it was going to gentrify Queens and worsen traffic, et cetera. She was hoping to work something out, but, you know, she really laid into Jeff Bezos for being greedy and wanting the tax breaks and not wanting to negotiate with the community for things like worker uh, representation and union rights and, uh, paying into a housing fund and, and other things that came up along the way. So, you know, she's, she's very happy to have the debate and to uh, defend capitalism, but she has a lot of ideas for the way capitalism can be reformed and, and improved. And I think in a lot of those ways, she's similar to Senator Sanders. I mean, Senator Sanders is more of a social Democrat than a socialist. I mean, I admire that he, use, that he still uses the word, but, uh, you know, he's talking about kind of new deal, new new deal level of regulation. So uh, I don't know on policy if how much uh, separates them, but she really embraces the capitalist label and he certainly does the opposite. You say that on the campaign trail, when she talked about the Green New Deal, she got choked up and tearful. Why was that? She talks about it again as a mother and she brings up childhood asthma rates. She really sees the the fate of the universe hanging in the balance and all of our children and grandchildren having to deal with the consequences of our inaction. So she's very passionate about it. She's very, again, she's a great saleswoman for it. Where she and I might disagree and, and, and had a little debate is she describes things like infrastructure as being bipartisan. And certainly you and I are old enough to remember when that was true, but it, but it stopped being true under Barack Obama. And so, you know, the notion of infrastructure and green jobs and cleaning up air and water, uh, she presents as very, very bipartisan, popular ideas. And in fact, polls say they are popular, but in terms of uh, passing legislation, she is a little bit more upbeat than I would be about the possibility of getting Republicans to sign on to this when, you know, they caricature it as being about abolishing cows and misrepresent it and, you know, are, are, are committed to the status quo. But she's very appealing on the, on the campaign trail and, and, and sells it very well. In Iowa, it, it matters quite a bit. There's a lot of problem with agricultural pollution. And I was there, she was there for major, major epic flooding, you know, which a lot of people believe is, is an accessory of climate change. So, you know, she was able to make it very concrete to people. And, and I think that's serving her well on the stump. Last question. She's polling at 1% or even less on some polls of the other female candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, have been third and fourth after Biden and Bernie with Beto's often in fifth. How does Kirsten Gillibrand think she could win? She would argue, and I would agree with this part, that she that, that polls are really a function of name recognition and, you know, she doesn't have it the way the way the others do. But specifically the way she says she can win is that she both satisfies the base in terms of being sufficiently progressive, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, but has also demonstrated that she can win in red districts. She won, she won back a lot of counties in 2018 in New York in her Senate race that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 to Trump. She has demonstrated an appeal to red and purple district voters that she thinks will serve her well, while she can also 
appeal to base voters who care more about progressive issues. That's the case that she's making. A lot of people say she's a really hard worker. She's impressive on the stump. We shouldn't get caught up in this horse race analysis too early. We should pay attention to credible folks who are running. And I think I think voters are going to appreciate taking a serious look at her, whatever they decide. Joan Walsh, her report on Kirsten Gillibrand is on the cover of The Nation magazine. You can read it now at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Talk to you soon. The latest news about Gillibrand's campaign is about her fundraising, which the pundits take as one measure of support. Uh, Gillibrand has raised $3 million since launching her presidential bid. Uh, That is a sum that puts her near the bottom of the Democratic candidates at the end of the first quarter of the year. Uh, In a memo to her supporters, Gillibrand argued that her lower level of campaign contributions is due in part to what she calls backlash from establishment donors who are punishing her, she says, for calling on former Minnesota Senator Al Franken to resign in 2017 after those allegations of unwanted sexual touching. Uh, Nationally, the best of the uh, polls, the Monmouth University one, earlier this week had Gillibrand at zero. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Harold Meyerson, talked about politics, about the Supreme Court and the census. We also spoke with Stacey Abrams about her new book, Lead from the Outside. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.